Hello and welcome to Servant's Heart Chapel. I am Pastor Daryl, and I hope today's episode is a special blessing to you. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Joshua chapter 2. That is our next chapter in this series. Here in chapter 2, We see we come we come on to the first story the first story in the book of Joshua the first real story the first event and what's interesting about it is this book is a book of conquest of of God's judgment being brought upon various cities in Canaan but the first story is really a story of mercy. It's a story of Rahab, as we're going to get into. Rahab had a lot working against her in finding God. First off, Rahab was a Gentile. She was not Jewish, so she did not have that that connection, that history, that direct history, because God had chosen the Israelite people to be his people, to to be the medium in which the Messiah would come and save everyone, save all of us. He didn't, they didn't have, she didn't have that. She didn't have the, the interaction with God. She didn't have that connection. She didn't have the law that God had provided the people of Israel. She was an Amorite. They were a corrupt, vile uh, people who... Uh, routinely sacrificed children. She was a prostitute. Interesting uh, about this, and we're going to get into that. Uh, she very because of her business, she got a lot of travelers. I'm sure, and she probably it was probably a good place to hear news from afar. Travelers would come in and say, "Oh yeah, have you heard about this or that?" This going on, and you kind of wonder because she admits later on we're going to talk about it, she's heard some things about the God of Israel, and you kind of wonder some of the things that she does mention something that's her, but you wonder uh, maybe she she had somebody ask her, "Have you heard about what happened in Egypt? How I." Uh, these people who were enslaved, their God freed them from Egypt and did so by bringing all these plagues onto Egypt, finally culminating in the firstborn of everyone being killed, including the firstborn of Pharaoh. And he's supposed to be one of Egypt's gods but he had no power against this God of Israel. Maybe uh, they asked her, did you hear what happened at the Red Sea? They, they were supposedly, I heard this from, from, from you know, someone down the road when I was trading with that, that they came upon the, the Red Sea shores and they, and they realized the Egyptians were chasing them down. They could see the dust 
from all the chariots being flown in a dispute in the air and they were terrified they were trapped in the shores of this this large body of water when when the water just parted and they walked across on dry ground can you believe that and supposedly this is what i was told that that uh, the Egyptians followed them after they had crossed the Red Sea. It was still parted, and the Egyptians followed them in. And when all the Egyptians came, were, were in that midst of the Red Sea, the water just collapsed around them. Maybe she heard all of this. And that's the situation we're, we're kind of coming into with this. In verse 1 of chapter 2, Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two men as spies from the uh, Acacia Grove, saying, go and scout the land, especially Jericho. I find it fascinating that so little uh, changes when it comes to military tactics, yes, technology changes and there's some tactical changes with that. But over thousands of years, there really, a lot of things are still the same. I, I found it interesting when, when we first went into Afghanistan and I was at Kandahar and in different places. The places that we took over when we first took over Afghanistan and started fighting Afghanistan were the same areas that Alexander the Great took over and made sure he controlled when he took over Afghanistan. Find that fascinating. And here, uh, Joshua does something that all we still do. He sends two men out to to you know figure out what's going on. And here. Like, you know, thousands of years ago, like we would now, Joshua is gathering intel. He's, he's figuring, he's getting a, an accurate assessment of the area. So we notice that Joshua here is doing what he can as well as praying to God asking for help. That's the responsible thing to do, you know. To do everything you can and also to pray. Sometimes people make the mistake of, of just praying when they are perfectly capable. Uh, uh, God has provided them with the resources to solve the problem and they spend their time praying. There Years ago, there was a women's conference taking place with hundreds of women attending and they invited this preacher to speak at their conference and he came and, and he was going to uh, speak and at the beginning of the time together they were going to pray and one of the women i uh, gave a prayer request for another woman that they all knew who was having some health issues and needed surgery and needed a few thousand dollars for surgery and she asked that that god would provide that and the preacher told her no I'm not doing that. That kind of shocked him. And then, surprised him even more, he had them all stand up and file down to the front. And as they came to the front to reach in their purse and pull out all the cash they had in their purse and lay it on the altar and go back to the seats. 
And so all the women did this. Some of them very unhappy to be doing so. And when they were done, they had enough money to give to the woman to meet that need. A lot of times we, we, we will focus on praying when God has already given us the ability and the resource to take care of something. Praying without using what God has given us is as foolish as using what God has given us without praying. That can be a mistake too, just jumping in and taking care of stuff without first seeking the Lord's guidance. Both are, are important in the Christian walk as we see in Psalms chapter, or Psalm 126. Verses 4 and 5. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like watercourses in the Negev. Those who sow in tears will reap in shouts of joy. So verse 4 is this prayer asking God to help. And 5 is, is we're, there's work that we're doing. Sowing in tears, whether it's in pr uh, prayer or just uh, trying to accomplish what God has given us to do. There's a dual effort. Is that that? Or that sound? Oh, bathroom? All right. Um, so uh, Joshua tells them to go and scout the land, especially Jericho. Jericho was a fortress, and not just a fortress, but but in, you know, inside this fortress was a whole bunch of well-trained soldiers. Israel, in order to successfully attack Jericho. Israel had to first cross the Jordan in flood season. And, and so in order all the effort to cross it and then you go to attack it, you've you've got you've got the the flooded Jordan behind you and this impenetrable fortress ahead of you. So if anything goes wrong it's going to be very difficult to, to retreat or get out of there in any way. Tactically, Israel did not have a chance if God didn't intervene. So Joshua wanted a, a good assessment of that, so they left, verse, uh, still in verse 1, so they left and they came to the house of the prostitute named Rahab. And stayed there. Prostitute's house is a good place to stay if you didn't want questions asked about who you are and, and where you're coming from and where you're going. But we're going to see that later that they weren't as sneaky as they thought they were shortly here. Verse 2. 
In fact, this next verse, verse 2, the king of Jericho was told, Look, some of the Israelite men have come here tonight to investigate the land. Then the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab and said, Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house, for they came to investigate the entire land. So they weren't as sneaky as, as they, they thought they were. Not only did the, uh, uh, Jer- uh, Jericho's army uh, know that they were in town, they knew exactly where they went and where they were uh, supposedly hiding. Verse 4, but the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. So she said, yes, the men who came to me, the men did come to me, but I didn't know where they were from. At nightfall, when the city gate was about to close, the men went out. I don't know where they were going. Chase after them quickly, and you can catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them among the stalks of flax that she arranged on the roof. I do want to point out that... Rahab lied here, didn't she? But God didn't ask, no one asked her to tell a lie. It wasn't necessary. The Bible says it is wrong to lie, and it is. And here in this text, this, the situation, uh, her lie is neither condemned nor commended. It's just simply stated as a fact. She simply didn't know any better, be my, my guess. She actually didn't need to lie. She could have said, yes, they were here, but look for yourself. You won't find them. And I believe God would have made that happen. I've heard many stories of, of Christians uh, like smuggling Bibles into the former Soviet Union. And they would have their back seat filled with Bibles, crossing a, 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 a secure area and, and praying, God, don't let them see the Bibles. And, and the guard comes up and, and they just wave them on. They don't notice at all. God takes care of us. We don't. I want you to know that, that God will never put us in a position where we have to sin. The world will want you to believe that. I remember at NCO Academy, I don't know if they still do or not, but they used to ask you ethics questions, and they say if you agree with one thing, you stand on this side of the room. If you agree with something else, you, you stand on the other side of the room. And one of the questions was, would you steal to feed your family? And... Everybody stood at one side of the room saying, yes, they would steal to feed their family. And I stood by myself on the other side of the room saying, no, I would not steal. Now, why wouldn't I steal? Because it's not just wrong, but I also know God will take care of us. God will never put us in a position where we have to sin. We get tricked so often. I knew a man years ago who... Uh, used to be involved in drug dealing and that type of culture. And he, one night, he had stopped off and, and interacted with some of his former associates. This is after he became a Christian. And he had stopped that. He had denounced that stuff. But he enacted, 
he, he came across, I don't know if it was by accident or whatever. It's been too long now, but um, they gave him some drugs. Why? Because in, in the drug culture, that's like offering someone a glass of iced tea when you come visit him. Here, have a little bit. And he admitted to me that he, he didn't want to make them angry, so he took the drugs. And thought, well, I'll just dispose of it later. But not long after he left, he got pulled over by a police officer. And got taken in for a minor, he was on parole, and, and it was a minor infraction he got pulled over for and, and, and taken in for. It would have just been a slap on the wrist and, 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 uh, and then released. But they found the drugs on him. And it became a much bigger issue. And when I finally saw him again after he was back out, I was like, dude, the devil played you. You realize that, right? He knew you were going to get pulled over after you left. The devil can't see the future, but he knows what's going on. He knows there's a cop sitting two blocks away. Don't get played by the devil. So verse 7, the men pursued them along the road to the fords of the Jordan. As soon as they left to pursue them, the city gate was shut. Before the men fell asleep, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know the Lord has given you this land. That's, a, that's significant. I know the Lord has given you this land. She knows that. And that the terror of you has fallen on us and everyone who lives in the land is panicking because of you, for we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did in Sahon and Og, the two Amorite kings you completely destroyed across the Jordan. When we heard this, we lost heart, and everyone's courage failed because of you, for the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. Now that's significant. She's admitting that the God of Israel is the God. Notice that the others, the other people she was around, her people in, in, in the city that she was a resident of, they were panicked, they were scared. But as far as we know, no one else came to the same conclusion. Verse 12, now please swear to me by the Lord that you will also show kindness to my father's family because I show kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father, mother, brothers, sisters, and all who belong to him and save us from death. You know, the, the language Latin wouldn't come to this region that Rahab was for another thousand years. But if Rahab had known Latin, she might have said Rahab contra mundum. Which means? Very excellent. That's fantastic. 
Rahab against the world. This phrase used to be spoken by uh, Athanasius, who was an early church father around the 4th century. He, he would say, contra mundum, it's to describe his situation, him against the world. For him, life was not easy. Right at this time, there was a lot of heresies going around, and there was great debate about whether Jesus was God or not. And he supported the deity of Christ and was hated for it. There were emperors that would frequently uh, send, would frequently send him into exile. Even many in the church turned against him. And for decades, it was Athanasius against everyone. But he stood his ground. He, he held on to what he knew was right. Rahab's story is is no less amazing. Maybe even more so because Rahab didn't know Jesus. She had no Bible. She had no preacher. Yet she learned about God and determined to follow him no matter the cost. And she put her life on the line and rejected her people. She stood her ground. She didn't know what was going to happen. As far as she knew, she was going to get killed. Either her, 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 her uh, own people finding out that she's, uh, she's starting to follow this God of Israel, and they kill her, or the Israelites renege on their agreement, and they go ahead and just kill her anyways. She had no proof, but she, she was going to... Uh, follow this God that she's heard so much about. Verse 14, the men answered her, we will give our lives for yours. If you don't report our mission, we will show kindness and faithfulness to you when the Lord gives us the land. Then she let them down by a rope through the window since she lived in a house that was built into the wall of the city. Go to the hill country so that the men pursuing you won't find you, she said to them. Hide there for three days until they return. Afterward, go on your way. The men said to her, we will be free from this oath. You made us swear, unless we enter the land, you tied this scarlet cord to the window through which you let us down. Bring your father, mother, brothers, and all your father's family into your house. If anyone goes out the doors of your house, his death will be his own fault and we will be innocent. But if anyone with you in the house should be harmed, his death will be our fault. And if you report our mission, we are free from the oath you made us swear. And then verse 21, she replied, let it be as you say. And she sent them away. After they had gone, she tied the scarlet cord to the window. That scarlet cord representing, it doesn't say it represents 
the the blood of the lamb on 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 the doorposts uh, during Passover. But it sure, I I can't imagine that any of the people of Israel missed that similarity. I feel like that the two guys specified scarlet for a reason. It could have been he could have said tie a cord, but he said make it red. If we look at Exodus chapter twelve. We won't read the entire chapter. It's 42 verses in there, but that's at verse 21. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go select an animal from the flock according to your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a cluster of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin, brush the lintel, and the two doorposts with some of the blood in the basin. None of you may go out the door of his house until morning. Does that sound familiar? And of course, later on, we talk about that Christ is the Passover lamb. Christ is the one who sacrificed so that we may be saved, so we don't have to be taken by death. Death has no power for us because of what Christ did for us. And so with Rahab, they say, mark your window with this red cord and don't go out your house and you'll be saved. And, and Rahab was, was wise enough to follow, follow that order. Rahab uh, is one of the great salvation stories of the Old Testament. You have this pagan prostitute, and one act, one act of faith does so much. It is significant. It's history changing. And we're going to talk about how that's so. First off, uh, we won't turn to it, but if you care to later on, in Matthew chapter 1, it goes through the lineage of Christ from Adam all the way down. And we see from Matthew chapter 1 that, that Rahab married a man named Salmon and she had a baby boy and called him Boaz who ended up marrying a young lady named Ruth which we, hear their, we read their story in the book of Ruth. And Ruth had a baby boy named and, and named him Obed, who later grew up and later fathered Jesse, who grew up and fathered a boy a baby boy named David, who would eventually become king of Israel and an ancestor of Jesus Christ. So Ruth, in her one act of faith, I. I ended up in the tribe of Judah and in the lineage of Christ. She became an ancestor of Jesus. 
And then if we look to Hebrews, chapter 11. Chapter 11 is what's called the Hall of Faith. It's a list of uh, Hebrews is one of the harder ones to find. There is a table of contents in the beginning of your Bible until you get used to the different books. But Hebrews 11 is um, the hall of faith. And it's just this wonderful list, an encouraging list of, of people in, in, that, that are listed in the Bible, in Scripture, as having trusted God in spite of everything. And in, in Hebrews chapter, it goes Abraham and Isaac and Noah and Moses and all these wonderful heroes of the faith. And then in verse 31, it says, By faith Rahab the prostitute received the spies in peace and didn't perish with those who disobeyed. So here, because of Rahab's one act of faith, She's honored for her faith among all these great heroes of the faith. And then finally in James chapter 2. Verses 14 through 26. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can his faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and the one, uh, one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and eat well. But you don't give them what the body needs. What good is it? In the same way, faith, if it doesn't have works, is dead by itself. But if someone will say, you have faith and I have works, show me your faith without works and I will show you my faith from my works. If you believe God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and they shudder. Foolish man, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith is, was active together with his works, and by works faith was perfected. So the scripture is fulfilled that said Abraham believed, and it was credited him for righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, wasn't Rahab the prostitute also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by a different route? 
For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. So James uses Rahab as an example for us. Why? Because of her one act of faith, this pagan who knew almost nothing about God, who lived in a very evil society, who was practicing great evil herself, realized that there is a true living God, and she wanted to serve that God. And she believed. And now she sets, is set as an example for us. So much. So much of an impact. Verse 22, so the, so the two men went into the hill country and stayed there three days until the pursuers had returned. They searched all along the way but did not find them. Then the men returned, came down from the hill country and crossed the Jordan. They went to Joshua, son of Nun, and reported everything that had happened to them. They told Joshua, the Lord has handed over the entire land to us. Everyone who lives in the land is also panicking because of us. I think one takeaway we can we can we can walk away from from this chapter is if God can rescue Rahab, no one is beyond His reach. God is not a respecter of persons. When I was going to Bible College in Cincinnati, I worked security for the school, and and the guy in charge of the school had some uh, uh, guard dogs he was having trained some Rottweilers, and I went with him uh, to begin getting these dogs trained with the training school, and the guy who ran the school was this very rough-looking biker-type guy. And, uh, and my friend asked me, do you think he'd be interested in some tracks? Tracks are little uh, pamphlets or booklets or little slips that talk about Jesus and the gospel and what Jesus can do for you. And he asked me, do you think he'd be interested in some tracks? And I thought, probably not. Well, he went ahead and, and, and gave him one anyways. And he took it. And then the next week, he, he gave him another one. And he took it. Next week, he gave him another one. And he took it. Sometime between month one and month two, that man got saved. And soon after that, his whole house, his wife, his kids gave their lives to Jesus, and there was a radical transformation. And I remember seeing him a few months later uh, at the campus of the school that I attended, and, and he had cleaned up some, shaved a little bit, shaved. But the most significant difference was the smile on his face and the smile on, on the faces of his wife's and, wife and children. God had changed his heart. I was wrong. I was young, naive. I thought if somebody looks rough enough, I would probably, you'd probably tell if they're interested or not. You can't. You can't. It doesn't matter where you're at. If there's any interest, any awareness in your heart, there has to be a better way. God will find you. And I praise the Lord for that. This chapter is a call to have confidence in the mercy 
and grace of God. Maybe there's a Jericho in your life. This monstrosity fortress seems impenetrable. You can't beat it. You can't win on your own. And perhaps God is waiting for you to demonstrate faith in obedience and trust by dependent prayer. We live in a land right now that rejects God. And we have two choices as I see it. Choice number one, to live contra mundum. Or to go along with society so as not to rock the boat. The people of Jericho thought themselves safe. The walls were strong. But they were not safe. And neither is anyone today who knows to do what is right and does not do it. Not safe. I remember reading the book, actually the book Live Not By Lies. Fantastic book. Uh, and is based on the experience of those who lived under Soviet Russia. There were people, when, when, the, when the Soviets began to crack down on religion, there were people that thought if they just were silent and didn't rock the boat, that they'd be safe. And, and remember some of the people interviewed saying, you are not. It's just only a matter of time before they finally come to you. This story is both an encouragement and a warning. It's an encouragement to know that God asks all, all that God asks of us is to just trust Him. But we're also warned to not ignore God just because life is going well. And that's what we're seeing a lot of right now. People not really wanting to think about God because. They have all their distractions in life. It's dangerous. Let's stand. Well, that's all for today. I hope it was a blessing to you. I do have one more thing to add. Uh, I have recently published a book entitled Stop Poisoning Yourself, Finding Joy in All Circumstances. Few of us realize the impact our, our thoughts have on our daily lives, how it impacts our emotions, our relationships, including our relationship with God. Uh, in this book, I, I go through, it's a very short, easy to read book, I go through what the Bible says about it, how and what we can do uh, to eliminate poisonous thoughts in our lives. So to, if you're interested, go check it out on Ken, uh, Amazon Kindle's website. You'll find it there. Just search for Stop Poisoning Yourself by Daryl Underwood. Enjoy your week. Have a wonderful day.